So we see this throughout the Gospels. Again and again, we see people bringing people to Jesus. And here we see unnamed people bringing this man to Jesus, whom this man, we're told, was deaf and had a speech impediment. It's impossible to really perceive the world around you without using words if you've grown up with words. That's how God has designed the human mind. Now it maybe makes a little bit more sense for us when we begin to think about some of the things that God says to us in his word, such as the word became flesh. The logos became flesh and dwelt among us. Or things like God said, let there be light. And there was light. Or God said, let there be land. And there was land. And that theme of God speaking, God creating by speaking, is a theme far too great for us to even delve into right now. But maybe that just sheds a little bit of light on on why it is that God places so much emphasis on words because Our human minds are so dependent upon language and words to even not just communicate with others, but to even communicate with ourselves. Now, the world of a person born deaf is a world devoid of language, is a world in which there are no words to form their thoughts and to organize their thoughts. I don't even know how to begin imagining that. I don't even know how to begin imagining what it would be like to have never had words that associated with the reality around me, that I could use those words to to think for myself. This is why throughout the majority of human history, those who were deaf, particularly those who were born deaf, were usually considered insane. Because the, the vast difference, the chasm between a person who has never had words and the rest of the world is so great that, again, until recent human history, people have always thought them to be insane. With all of that, that really, I think, sets the, t- sets the frame for us to begin looking at one of the most powerful stories in Mark's gospel, the story, of course, of one who lived in a silent world and how Christ came to him and why Christ came to him and what was done, and what that means. So with those thoughts in mind, let's now turn our thoughts. Let's not forget about that, but put those in the back of your brain, if you will. And let's hold on to those. We'll return to those in just a little bit later. But as we're thinking about that, as we're thinking about a world, a silent world, a world without words, think about what the world around you, just think about how different that world would be if your world was silent. Think about the fear. Think about the anxiety. Think about the uneasiness that all of life would be if your world was silent and everybody else's world was hearing. Think about how differently you would have to interact with the world around you. Think of how distinct you would be. The uh, International Mission Board, which is the Sending the mission sending agency in the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest mission sending organization in the world. 
they approach their task by trying to make their task more the task of taking the gospel to all those these people groups that haven't heard. They approach that task by dividing the whole world into affinity groups. By affinity groups, they divide all of the world's population into nine groups of people. These nine groups of people that they say have affinity with one another. And that affinity largely may be a geographic area that they share, perhaps a language that they share or similar languages, culture and similar cultures. And they just find it helpful helpful to divide the world up into these affinity groups. One affinity group would be Eastern Europe or Western Europe. One would be Sub-Saharan Africa. One would be the Far East and China. And by dividing the world up into these groups, they're not saying all these people are exactly alike, but they're saying they share language commonalities, they share cultural commonalities, they share geographical commonalities that help us to just approach those affinity groups more uh, efficiently, more effectively. And so of the nine affinity groups that they've divided the world into, do you know that one of those affinity groups is the deaf? And so they have considered, rightly, that people without hearing have more in common with one another than they do with any hearing person. In other words, a deaf person in China has more in common with a deaf person in America than they do with a hearing person in China. Isn't that amazing? But that's true. That's how drastically the lack of hearing, the absence of hearing, that's how how much that changes your reality to be in a silent world So imagine now the fear and the anxiety and just imagine the trepidation that all of life presents to you as a non-hearing person. Now, with that said, let's now turn to our text. From verse 31. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is indeed one of Jesus's oddest miracles to perform. Here Jesus is spitting, sticking his fingers in somebody's ear, So it's certainly one of the oddest miracles that we come across in Mark's gospel. And it's worth slowing down and just thinking a little bit about what Jesus is doing. Why is he doing these odd things? What's going on in this passage for us to see and for us to learn? So let's just begin once again from verse 1. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So have you ever taken a journey and realized about a third of the way through the journey or halfway through the journey that you took a wrong turn and your wrong turn has put you on the long route 
but you've been on the long route <clears throat> too long to turn around and go back and get on the right one. And so you say, well, it's just easier and quicker for me to just continue on the long way. And so your long way is going to take you twice as long as if you'd gone the right way to begin with. That seems a little bit like Jesus's journey here. We're told that he, tr- he leaves the region of Tyre and goes through Sidon. Sidon is north of Tyre. So he leaves Tyre. We're told that he goes north through Sidon and then through the whole region to the Decapolis and down to the Sea of Galilee. That's a journey of at least 120 miles. 120 miles. If Jesus and the disciples walked all day every day, stopping for the Sabbath, that's a full week. And knowing how Jesus tends to stop and there's crowds and he's delayed here and there's teaching there and there's healings over here. I mean, we're talking about several weeks of a journey that Jesus takes here to get to this region on the shore of the Sea of, De- of, the, uh, sea of Galilee known as De- Decapolis. So why does Jesus take such a long and odd route? We don't know. We don't know. We can only really speculate Perhaps there were some along the route that were sheep of Jesus' pasture and he sought to rescue his sheep. Perhaps he also wanted to spend some time with the the disciples, the apostles, who will be the foundation of the church. So he wants this time to spend with them, teaching them some things, or perhaps a mixture of both, or perhaps neither. We just don't know. We can only speculate. But nevertheless, he does take this long route. And if there was something on the route that we needed to know, if there was something along the way that would have been needful for us to know in order for us to, re- to realize salvation or to live a godly life, then the Holy Spirit would have told us, but he didn't. So he takes this long journey. We don't know how long it takes, but then he finally comes to this place known as the Decapolis on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now we recognize this because Jesus has been here before. In chapter five, he goes to this same place and he's met by one person. He's met by the man known as Legion. And then there's the casting out of the demons known as Legion and the freeing of the man. The residents there ask him to leave. There's that whole story and he leaves. But as he leaves, you remember what he tells the what he tells the man who, whom he has freed from the demons, he wants to come with him. And Jesus says, no, you cannot come with me. Instead, I want you to stay and I want you to tell everyone of what the Lord has done for you. <clears throat> so apparently this man has done a wonderful job of that because as Jesus now returns to the Decapolis, we find that there's a crowd there not only waiting for him, but anticipating that he is now here to provide healing for them. Verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. So the word has spread that Jesus is this mighty healer, this mighty prophet. And presumably the, presumably the word has at least begun by this man that was known as Legion. And so now many people have heard of it. He seems to have done a wonderful, incredible job of being a witness to the transformation, the radical transformation that Jesus has brought about in his life. And so people have heard about this and they've now brought this crowd to him. And so they were not told who, but they bring a man to him. Reminds me of chapter two. When they bring the paralyzed man to Jesus, they can't get in the house, so they lower him down to the roof. So we see this throughout the Gospels. Again and again, we see people bringing people to Jesus. And here we see unnamed people bringing this man to Jesus, whom this man, we're told, was deaf and had a speech impediment. So the speech impediment, we can understand, I think, right away, that the speech impediment was a result of the deafness because we understand how it is that the, the, the speech, our speech is connected with our hearing in such a way that you can't have one without the other. You can't have speech without hearing because it's necessary, it's needful for us to hear the sound 
that not only we're making, but other people are making, it's needful to hear that sound in order to form the sound properly. And so those who have lost their hearing or lost a significant amount of hearing or lost all of their hearing, they, we often find that after a period of time, their speech really becomes very, very difficult to understand. Those who are born without hearing almost never learn to speak at all because there's no way for them to understand how to form sounds unless they can hear those sounds. So his speech problem, his speech pathology is uh, likely a result, almost certainly a result of his deafness or his hard of hearingness. So though, the, though he is able to speak to some degree, we're not told that he's mute. We'll get to that a little bit later. So we're not told that he's mute, but he's able to speak somewhat, but his speech is strained. It's difficult. It's a speech pathology. And so the fact that he's able to speak some probably means that he wasn't born deaf, but he has become deaf probably for some quite, quite some time now to such a degree that his speech has deteriorated to be described as this severe, this difficult speech impediment. So they bring him this man that's deaf with a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. So that recalls for us, of course, Jairus who comes and asks Jesus to come and lay his hand on his daughter. The laying on of hands must have been something that Jesus did so regularly that people just associated with Jesus. Of course, Jesus doesn't need to touch anyone to heal them. We saw that just in the previous story. But we also have seen that Jesus wants to touch. Jesus doesn't want to heal from a distance. He doesn't want to heal from the other side of the room. He wants to interact. He wants to touch. He wants to be near. So they ask him to come and lay his hands on him, verse 33, and taking him aside, meaning the man, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. So that is quite an odd sequence of events for us. And one of the things that we must caution ourselves at the beginning here is to remind ourselves to just endeavor to not place upon ancient cultures modern social mores, modern social customs, modern social taboos, it's important for us to understand we are talking about a different culture in a different time that did not have the same cultural taboos that we have today. If I were to spit, and then whether, it's, whether Jesus spat on the ground or whether he spat on his finger, we're not told. If I were to do that and then touch your tongue, then you would be quite shocked, rightly so, because we don't do that in our culture. But this is a different culture. So let's be careful not to associate our present-day social, social norms with Jesus's culture. But nevertheless, isn't it still such just an odd way of going about this? 